following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. Everybody, if I haven't met you, my name is Jonathan. I'm the pastor here at this church, and I've had the privilege of um, overseeing this, this great series we've had in the first 12 chapters of John. If you've been around, you'll know that the Gospel of John is sort of divided into two halves. So you've got chapters 1 to 11, uh, where John, as one of Jesus' three closest friends, uh, writes out a, an accurate eyewitness historical account of Jesus' life, and particularly his miracles, a few miracles out of many that John chose to record, and he tells us in chapter 20 that he recorded them so that we would know who Jesus is. And so the whole series has uh, been um, sort of around that theme, who is Jesus? Who does John, the eyewitness, say Jesus was? And uh, the second half of the book of John, from chapters 13 to the end, chapter 21, are all about the last week of Jesus' life. So it shows you what kind of uh, weighting John gives to that, that week. That is worth half of his book, that last week of Jesus' life. And chapter 12, where we are today, is the hinge between those two halves. It's the time where, between uh, John's account of Jesus' life and ministry and John's account of Jesus' death. And so um, in this passage that we've just heard read and that we're going to look at today, you see Jesus turning towards Jerusalem for the last time, entering Jerusalem for the last time. He'll never make it out again alive until his resurrection from the dead. And so um, this morning I just really want to focus on a a small part of this passage. The the chapter itself uh, that we started last week and we'll finish today is huge. There is so much in there that John has packed in as sort of a precursor to the final week of Jesus' life. It would take us all year to get through every verse, which is what we like to do, um, generally speaking. But this morning, I just want to draw out a couple of things from this passage and really set up the next series in John that will start in February uh, 2015, as we look at the last half of the book, uh, that last week of his life, and we'll finish it by the time we get to Easter. And, and where we particularly remember Jesus' death and resurrection. So this will just be kind of setting that up, as John himself does, sets up that last half of his book. And then next week, we've added an additional week uh, just to recap this series, because there have been a lot, in my interactions with you, there have been a lot of aha moments in this time. There have been a lot of key uh, moments in your own faith um, in terms of recognizing who Jesus is, Uh, There have been people who have come to faith in this series, and so I want to recap some of those landmarks that we've had along the way. Um, That'll be a a fairly brief talk, just to refresh our memory, and then we'll have uh, a QA and a time, okay? So if you've had questions along the way that maybe weren't answered in your small groups, or uh, if you're not part of a small group, perhaps stuff that's been on your mind, stuff you disagree with, stuff that's mysterious, um, stuff you just want to bring to our attention, that'll be a time where we can just interact Uh, next week, okay? So we'll do that then. So as we approach this this passage, I want you to think about um, across the course of your life, what would be the, the, the moment of glory? If you had to isolate one significant moment of glory, 
in your life so far. It might be a moment that you've been working up towards your whole life, a, a moment that sort of illustrates the purpose of your life. Maybe it's a, a big promotion at work. Maybe it's uh, the, the day your kid's first child was born. Or, or, or maybe it's, um, I don't know, earning your degree. Maybe it's a great sporting achievement. I'm 33 now, so all my sporting achievements uh, have well and truly come and gone, right? I'm not going to have any more of them. And I've sort of, I've moved from the phase where you go from playing sport in teens and 20s and maybe being okay at it to, to post-30, the second phase, which is not playing much sport and, and having massively embellished memories of when you did play sport, all right? You, you, you're with me? Like, I don't play sport anymore, but I'm pretty sure I was awesome at one point. And, and, and my memories of those medals and trophies that I won just have thousands of people witnessing them. And, 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 and instead of being at primary school level, they're at state level. You know what I mean? So, so um, I could choose one of those, but it would probably be mainly fabricated. So just in your own mind, think about what's your moment of glory? If you, if you had to, at the end of your life... Um, David writes a book on your life, 200,000 pages. What's the big chapter going to be about? What's the main event? Uh, 200,000 words, that was. Uh, what's the main event that you want the world to know about? This morning, Jesus is going to give us his moment of glory. We're going to see Jesus, what the, the thing that he nominates as the purpose of his life his great moment of glory is going to be revealed this morning. But just to set up a bit of context for us, remember whenever we come to the Word, it's really important for us to know the context. Context is everything. And so we get the context in verse 20, if you uh, take a look or, uh, at, at the Bible or up on the screen. John records that now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So it's the feast. That's where we're at. You remember last week we found out it was the feast of the Passover. That's the feast that uh, forms the context of this passage, the feast of the Passover, the most important feast for the nation of Israel, the feast where they remembered how God saved them in the great exodus out of Egypt, brought them eventually into this promised land where they now reside. Everything about them is summed up in that great event. So every year they celebrate this meal. And if you have a, a friend who's an Orthodox Jew, my, my dentist is an Orthodox Jew, and you'll hear from them if you ask them that uh, every year they celebrate this feast, this Passover. And the cool thing about being a Christian and interacting with an Orthodox Jew, especially around the Passover, is that um, every year they are anticipating the Messiah coming again, the man who God will send to reconcile and restore all things. And you can tell them, hey, you don't need to wait anymore. He's already here. So anyway, it's during that feast that we uh, come to this passage. And it's during that feast that Jesus enters Jerusalem. The, the Bible translators have titled it the triumphal entry. And the ironic thing about it is that this triumphal entry of this king of Israel happens in very humble circumstances. So he comes in not on a war horse, not, not like Gandalf on Shadowfax, all right? 
science fiction nerds, fantasy nerds, you're with me, all right? Not like that, not in, not in glory, but on a donkey. In humility. When we get there next year, you're going to see one of the first things Jesus does after this triumphal entry is wash his disciples' feet, taking on the task of the lowest possible slave in the household. So Jesus is a king, but he's not the kind of king that they were anticipating. He's not the kind of king that this large crowd has been calling for. He's a very different kind of king. He's a servant king who is about to give up his own life for the sake of the world. And so that forms the context of this passage this morning. So let's get into it now. Let's read verse 22 and 23. Excuse me, 21 to 22. So these uh, Greeks have come up in the feast. These are Jewish Greeks. These are Greeks who have uh, become Jews. And uh, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Philip went and told Jesus. And so these Greeks are part of uh, this growing, growing mass of people who is following Jesus now. You remember, this, this crowd has been following him for the last few weeks of our sermon series. They were uh, assembled uh, just last week when we looked at Jesus uh, raising, uh, sorry, the week before, Jesus uh, raising Lazarus from the tomb. Uh, They were there around and about during the dinner that was given in honor of Jesus in the previous week, and they're still there now, this crowd that has gathered, and it's massive now. So much so that the Pharisees have said, listen, all that we're doing to try and get rid of this Jesus movement is coming to nothing. The whole world is going after him, they're saying. It's not just Jews, it's Greeks now. More and more and more people, and especially during this festival that brings people from all over the known world, Jewish believers from all over the known world, they're here now and they want to know who Jesus is as well. It's this last sort of act of desperation. Jesus is going to just take the world by storm and and that's the point where they kill him. And so these Greeks come to Jesus' friends, to Philip and to Andrew. We want to see Jesus. And in verse 23, Jesus is going to tell us about his moment of glory. This moment that is going to summarize and encapsulate his whole existence. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you've been around a little bit or know anything about the Gospel of John, you know that that term, the hour, is a key term. That's a key phrase in the book of John. It's a recurring phrase, the hour. Right throughout, we've seen Jesus say, I'm not going to do this because the hour has not come. Or John editorializing saying, this didn't happen because Jesus' hour had not come. Over and over again, people have tried to arrest him, tried to stone him, tried to kill him. And John says, that didn't happen because his hour had not yet come. Way back at the second week, I think, when we looked at John uh, chapter 2, we saw 
in that passage. Remember at the wedding at Cana, the wine has run out before Jesus gives the demonstration of his creation power in turning water into wine. John says this, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, that's Mary, said to him, they have no wine. It's like a, it's a tragedy, all right? Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so from the very beginning and building right throughout, if you're reading this for the first time, and remember, John's expecting us just to read it as one book, uh, not to take 20 weeks to do half of it, but just to read it as a book, one or two or three sittings, you would have felt this tension, this growing expectation. What is this hour? The hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come. Verse 23, my hour has come. We're there now. This is what the whole book has been building towards. This is what Jesus' whole life has been pointing towards. The hour has come. And so he says in verse 27 and 28, look down there, Now is my soul troubled, troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Save me from this moment. But for this purpose I come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So whatever this moment is, this moment of glory, it's, it's got him troubled. His soul is troubled. And that's the polite English translation. The, 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 the real sense of the word is just this gut-wrenching fear or anxiety or stress. It's the same word and the same stress that in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he dies causes Jesus to sweat blood. It's a verified medical condition under the most oppressive stress possible. Your capillaries in your skin will break and, and literally blood will pour out of your skin. That's the kind of stress that Jesus experiences when he thinks about this hour, his moment of glory. And so he says, my soul is troubled, but should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, no, this is my purpose in life. This is what I've been working towards. This is the whole reason that I came. And so people down the centuries have looked at the life of Jesus, have read the Gospel of John, and they have gone away, not with faith in Jesus, but with this kind of historical analysis that leads them to think that Jesus was a good man, and in tragic circumstances he was betrayed, he was falsely accused, and he was killed. And, and the whole message of Jesus' life is really that bad things happen to good people. Right? It's an innocent guy who gets screwed by the law and killed. An innocent man who is murdered. A mistrial, a miscarriage of justice. That's the message of the gospel for these people. It's a, it's a, it's a good man who dies an unjust death. And so um, Malcolm Muggeridge uh, was a famous author and back in the 60s he wrote this, This king of the Jews has no crown, no jewels, no orbs, no scepter, no ring. He is just a worthless, wasted, broken, naked body. And so with the Romans and the Jews, 
of Jesus' day, he uses that word king of the Jews in a uh, derisory way, in a mocking sense. This so-called king of the Jews, he's got nothing. There's nothing kingly about him. He's just a broken, worthless, wasted, naked body. It's just one big tragedy. Jesus seems to disagree. Jesus says, my whole purpose in coming to this earth, my whole purpose in being incarnated, that is, entering into human history, from birth in the stable to death, the whole purpose was to die. There is no mistake. There is no tragedy. This was the will of God before the creation of the world. Jesus was born to die. So it's not a mistake. It's not a tragedy. This is His purpose for living. The question is, why? What does it achieve? Why would the death of His own Son be God's great purpose and plan for the ages, before the foundation of the world? Why would He purpose for His Son to die? What does it do? What does it achieve? Some people go a little bit further than saying it's just a a mistake, a tragedy, a miscarriage of justice, and they say, well, Jesus' death wasn't just those things. It was also to give us an example of how to live and die well. It's an example of courage. It's an example of self-sacrifice, selflessness. So Jesus becomes for them this great moral leader. He not only taught great moral truths, but he lived a great moral life followed by a great moral death. He was the, the captain who went down with the ship. He was the guy who didn't run away. He was the guy who stayed true to his convictions. For them, he becomes this great example. I wonder if you see Jesus that way. He's kind of a a hero to to be emulated. He's a guy that you want your kids to be when they grow up so you bring them to Sunday school. Is he he that kind of guy? Someone to be appreciated, respected, maybe even loved, but not much more than an example to be emulated. John, in his Gospel, Jesus with his own words, is going to say, it's more than that. Jesus' death is about more than that. It's more than just a good example for us to follow. Let's read verse 24. Jesus explains, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. We witnessed this, um, this great miracle at our house uh, over the last couple of years. When we first got here to Caroline Springs, we, we grew up, uh, my wife Renee and I, we grew up in, uh, in Diamond Creek. And the thing about Diamond Creek, the reason it's there was because there was lots of gold there and the ground was really good for orchards. All right? So um, at my house, um, we had this property and there was a creek uh, that used to be, I don't know, mined for gold, um, and there are old mines there, 
that you can still fall into if you, um, if you wanted to. And, and there was orchards everywhere. We had fruit trees everywhere. So that's what it was all about. Diamond Creek, that's why it exists. Um, now it's so that people can live in white, suburban, comfortable bliss and naivety. It's like the Shire, Lord of the Rings fans. I'm, I'm still with you, all right? And so, and so when we moved here, the weirdest thing in the world happened. There weren't any trees, there weren't any hills, and the ground is just like rock, right? It's just made, it's just rock. That's all it is. Um, and uh, Renee's dad actually um, built the freeway, um, the, I don't know, is it the Western Freeway? And I was talking to him recently, and he said, um, it took them forever. He also did the Eastern Freeway, and it was easy. It took them forever here because it's just granite, right? It's, the, the ground's just, it's clay for a bit and granite. And uh, anyway, so the miracle that happened was that when we moved here, India was real small, and um, something I've really enjoyed doing with her since she was born, the day she was born, was w- nearly every day with weather permitting, we would go outside and we'll just look at stuff. And we'll talk about creation. We both love nature. We both love animals and things that God has created. And so we'll just talk about stuff that we find. Um, and, and so one day we're out there. We were both eating a nectarine that we bought from up at um, Bacchus Marsh. And um, that's like a little part of Diamond Creek, by the way, just out there. Just, God just chucked some out there and it landed there, right? Um, and, and so we, we went out there and we picked nectarines and we were eating them. And... Um, I said to her, let's just let's take the stone and we'll chuck it in the ground and see what happens. So we did that with both of them. And a couple of years later now, we have this tree, this nectarine tree. It's like, it's, it's like a, a massive miracle. Water into wine is nothing, right? Throwing a stone from a nectarine into the ground out here and it being a tree, that's a miracle. And there's fruit on it, right? And so just this last summer, we were looking at this tree. We were watering the tree because we had that like four weeks of blistering heat and it was starting to droop and we were, we were just tending to it and looking at how all the birds had eaten all the fruit and stuff and, and we were talking about the fact that we had planted the seed that made that tree and India said something really fascinating to me. She said, and we were talking about the fact that we buried it in the ground and she said, where is the seed now? That's a good question. I never even thought about that. Where is the seed? In my mind, you put the seed there and then a tree grows. Like it's, there's, I don't know about the connection, it just happens. But she was, she was analyzing, she was, she was coming to terms with what happened there, what, what changed. And the truth is that the seed died. To, to make this plant, to, to produce this fruit, the seed had to die. It had to, right, the stone had to break open and the little almond seed inside had to break. It had to die. It had to stop existing in its current form. And so every time you, and you should do this, it will help you remember this passage, every time you eat a nectarine, you need to think, this wouldn't be here unless a seed died. Or every time you eat a sandwich, you need to think, this bread wouldn't be here unless a grain of wheat died. And Jesus' point is, every time you meet a Christian, you should say, this person wouldn't be a Christian unless Jesus died. If you're a Christian, you need to say to yourself, there would be no fruit of faith 
in my heart right now unless Jesus died. That's the point. It's a very simple point he's making. Without the death of a seed, there can be no fruit. And without the death of God's Son, there can be no faith. That's Jesus' point. It's more than a tragedy. It's more than just a good example. It is the means by which people can be reconciled to God. Without it, there's nothing. Without the death of a seed, there's no fruit. Without the death of Jesus, there is no faith. And so we live in a context today, we live in a culture today where heaven is free for everybody. Heaven comes to everybody and it's free. You, you, you do any of the funerals that I've done for people who blatantly and, and publicly don't call themselves Christians, heaven is for them. Eternal life is theirs. Life with God is theirs forever. And there's no cost. It didn't cost them anything. It's just a natural progression from life on earth to the golf course in the sky. But Jesus says, no! Heaven doesn't come for free. It's not a natural progression. Without the death of God's Son, there is no eternal life. And without faith in His death on our behalf, there is no fruit of eternal life. And so he says in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the seed. Without me and faith in me, there is no fruit of faith. There is no fruit of eternal life. And so this is the very reason why this is Jesus' moment of glory. If it was just a death, who cares? He's just a bunch of bones. He's just a a, a naked, wasted body. But if it's the means by which the world can be saved, multitudes of people can enjoy eternal life, and without that death, there is none of that, then that becomes the most glorious moment of Jesus' life, the most glorious event in human history. The event that billions of people around the world celebrate every Sunday in worship. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... If Jesus dies, if this glorious event takes place, it bears much fruit. People in Australia 2,000 years later have faith, are saved from their sin, enjoy eternal life if this one grain of wheat dies. And so then he goes on to tell us what it achieves. That's why he has to die. This is what it achieves. Verse 31 and 32. He says this. But 
Let's just back it up, actually. You just need a bit of context, otherwise you don't get that. So he's, he's just said, for this purpose, I've come into this world. And then he says, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So here's what Jesus' death achieves. Three things. First of all, it's the judgment of the world. It says, now is the judgment of the world. This hour that's come, this is the judgment of the world. And so, what is the judgment of the world? The judgment of the world is death. God looks at the whole world, every single person, no exceptions, Mother Teresa, Princess Diana, I don't know, insert moral person here. The whole world, saints and sinners alike, right? Grandparents and pedophiles, everyone in together, the judgment on the whole world is death. Death. Death and condemnation for for our rebellion against our King. It's the, it's the judgment of treason against the king of the universe. And so Jesus says, that judgment comes now, but I'm going to die. I'm going to be the one who dies. I'm going to die taking on myself the judgment of the world. So when you think, what, what's God's view of the world? What judgment does he have of us? What would be the punishment fitting for us? Look at Jesus' bloody, broken body on the cross that's the answer and look beyond that then beyond the the gruesome crucifixion and see what jesus was really worried about what really stressed him out what was really troubling his soul it wasn't the physical pain it wasn't the excruciating pain it was the abandonment of his father and the anger and the wrath of god against sin being poured out on him that's what was troubling him That's the judgment of the world. That's the judgment that was about to fall on Jesus. Not just painful death, but condemnation. Wrath. God's righteous anger against sin poured out on Him. It's not just a tragic mistake. It's not just an example. Don't damn Him with faint praise saying that He's a courageous you know, martyr. No, he is taking on the judgment of the world that we deserve. And so that's the judgment. That's what he achieves. He takes on the judgment of the world for all who believe in him. That's been the message from the start until now. Number two, the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the very real, very personal force of evil that is in the world to this day, he will be cast out through Jesus' death. The hour has come not just for Jesus to die, but for Satan to be cast out. And so in his death, Jesus not only overcomes sin, he not only overcomes the judgment that we deserve, but he overcomes the ruler of this world, Satan himself. Here's why. Because Satan's great power 
is that he has, he has the power of judgment over us when we're in our sin. That's why Jesus refers to people who don't trust in him as children of the devil. They, it's like they belong to Satan as his children. He's like the parent and, he, and, and we're his kids apart from Jesus. We belong to him. He's like a jailer who holds the keys. And, and everyone who doesn't trust in Jesus is in that jail. They're in that jail of condemnation and, and God's wrath and judgment forever and he just jingles the keys. But when Jesus dies this death and he takes the judgment that we deserve, suddenly the gates fly open. It's this massive jailbreak that happens. Jesus dies and the gates of hell are opened up and everyone who has faith in him bolts, right? We're just running from hell free at last and Satan can jingle keys and demand that we get back in the cell and yell at us and accuse us. And tell us that we're still prisoners and refer to our stripy clothes. But he has no power over us. He can't make us climb back in the cell. We've been set free. The ruler of this world has been cast out. His power has been stripped. And so all Satan can do now for the believer who's been set free is jump around in front of us and yell at us and scream at us and tell us that we're still prisoners, but all we need to do is look to Jesus and say, no, no. Payment paid. Payment paid in full. Past, present, future sins dealt with on the cross. The full-orbed wrath of God poured out on Him. Nothing left for me. Free at last. Judgment paid, the rule of this world cast out. And finally, verse 32, when I'm lifted up, that could either be lifted up on the cross or lifted up in resurrection, doesn't really matter which it is, lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Because of Jesus' death and then his resurrection, he will draw all people to himself. And, and the word there, you need to know, it means all kinds of people. It doesn't mean all people in the world will be drawn to him because from start to finish, John and Jesus is clear. Some won't trust in him. Some won't accept his death on their behalf. And so they will experience God's judgment forever. They will experience being Satan's prison forever. They will not run free because of Jesus' death paid for them. So it doesn't mean all people will be drawn to him. He means all kinds of people. Sri Lankans, Samoans, Australians, right? All of the people you see gathered here today. People from different nations, tribes, tongues. People from different socioeconomic kind of backgrounds. All people, all kinds of people will be drawn to him. That's what Jesus' death achieves. That's why it's his greatest hour. So the question for us this morning is, do we see Jesus like that? Do we see Jesus as, as being fundamentally the man who came to die for us? 
more than being a good guy, more than being a great teacher, more than being an example to follow, more than being someone we want our kids to be like when they grow up? Do we see him as being the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins? Because that's the way he sees himself. That's what he says about himself. He says, this is why I came. This is my moment of glory. Through the ages, a trillion years from now, believers in Jesus aren't going to be gathering around the throne of God and saying, you're amazing because you fed the poor or because you healed the sick. We're going to be saying, you are amazing because you died on the cross for my sin. So, That's why Jesus died. That's the reason this is his moment of glory. Now, what's our response? All of that is great and glorious and it should lead us to rise up on our feet and sing praises to God. But what's our response beyond that? What's our response beyond this service? What's our response beyond Sunday? What do we take into the rest of this week? He tells us, what should characterize our life. He doesn't tell us what job we should do. He doesn't tell us right whether we should go to school or work. He doesn't tell us whether to be a stay-at-home mom or, or a working wife. He doesn't tell us these things, but he tells us what should color our existence in everything we do. Verse 25 and 26, this is where we're going to finish, so stay with me. Verse 25 and 26, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is what I love about Jesus. There's no fine print. There's no fine print. There's no asterisks. Right? Do you love that about Jesus? He's just the most upfront man of integrity. He's the most transparent man when it comes to what it means to follow him. I, I'm, I got so angry on Friday. It was, it was my dad's birthday yesterday. So Renee and I and India and Judah, um, when we went into the city and we bought him breakfast um, at uh, the Grand Hyatt, right? We saved up all our money for three years and we didn't buy him presents for that time. And then we took him out for breakfast. It was amazing. Buffet breakfast. Right? And, and there's like multiple buffets. Um, it was just awesome. And um, speaking of eternal life, that's what I picture. And um, one guy just dedicated to, to, to cooking bacon. One guy. Um, and, and so we went in there and, and, we, and we parked in the, in the hotel. We were running late as usual. And we parked there. And uh, it's, it was awesome because their early bird rate, $19. It was like, hallelujah, 19 bucks, right? So, one percent of the fee that we're going to pay for breakfast. So go in there and park and have breakfast and awesome few hours there, just relaxing. And and then we got back down to the car and I put my card in and it said ninety five dollars due. I was like, no, it's okay. It's just it's an error. So I called up the girl and I said, just just let you know there's been an error. Can you just make it so it asked me for nineteen dollars because that's what it said. It said it on the big. It had a big thing, a big screen. It said nineteen dollars. So. Just wondering if we could do that now instead of the $95. And, and, um, and she said, oh, no, it's, it's the early bird rate, so it's 
um, if you're before whatever, 8.30, and if you leave after 4.30. I was like, what? Huh? And she said, yeah, um, it's on the sign. And I said, not on the sign I saw, right? Not on the big lit up sign. She said, no, no, it's on the sign underground. And so, so I said, so I've got, to, I've got to actually come, I've got to drive underground to see that it's not $19, that there's a, there's a condition on that, and I've actually got to pay way more for staying far less time. And she said, yeah, that's about, that's about it. And so then I had this righteous anger, okay? What God sees when he sees sin, like it's perfectly just anger, I had a, a little bit of that. Um, and, and so every muscle in my body flexed, and I broke a few teeth as I ground them. And, um, and then by God's grace, I didn't destroy the, the ticket machine, and, and somehow, oh God, uh, I'm still dealing with it, so... Um, yeah, so um, definitely still dealing with it. So I put my card in and I paid the money and we, and we left. But, but what I hate about situations like that is not even the money, it's the fine print, right? You get into these situations, you think you're buying what was advertised and then it turns out it's com- something completely different. With Jesus, there's just no fine print. He's not running a scheme to get as many people as he can. He's just not. He couldn't care less about self-promotion. He couldn't care less. Remember at the start of the passage, these Greek guys come up to Philip and Andrew and say, we want to talk to Jesus. If that was me, and probably for, for Philip and Andrew, they're like, Greek guys want to know Jesus. This is crazy. Up till now, it's just been Jews, Greeks. Maybe what God has promised about blessing the nations is coming true. This is incredible. Our marketing team is kicking goals. With, like The strategy is on course. They go and tell Jesus, if you read a little bit later in the passage, Jesus' response is to go and hide. He goes and hides, right? He doesn't even talk to them. Because he knows that for people from all of the world to be drawn to him, like these Greeks and you and me in Australia, he has to die. It's not about marketing. It's not about attracting a following. If he doesn't die, none of it happens. And so he just keeps walking to the cross. He's not interested in schemes. There are no asterisks. It's awesome. Renee does all of the paperwork in our family because by the third line, I'm ropeable. I, I hate fine print. I, can't, I literally can't do it. And with Jesus, there is none. And so if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, know that. Jesus isn't going to dupe you into following him. And if God is gracious to us, we're not going to either. This church just exists to give you the plain truth as plainly as we can give it to you, and then you respond, and that's, that's up to God. And so Jesus' plain, very stark truth to you this morning is that if you want to follow him, you need to follow him to the cross. to that place of execution. The cross was a place of shame. It was a place for the the lowest of the low. It's the electric chair in the US, right? It's where mass murderers and pedophiles and terrible people go to die. That's the cross. The Roman historian Cicero said, the cross is so gruesome, 
so shameful that no Roman citizen should ever have to endure it. And that's where Jesus went. And that's where he asked us to go as well. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life. He's using hyperbole to say that everything I have is rubbish when I compare it to following Jesus. That's Paul's own words. Right? To follow Jesus means following him to the cross. It means dying every day. It means giving up your sense of self. It means finding your identity in Jesus Christ. In living every day for his glory. And so now, just as we close and as I pray for us, I want you to contemplate what that might mean for you. Let's bow our heads. I want to pray that God would make clear to each one of us in our lives, even here and now, what that means for us. For us as a church and for us as families, for us as individuals. Father, please come now in this time of uh, just reflection as we think about what we've heard this morning. Please make plain to us what you're calling us to. We know that Jesus' greatest hour was his death on the cross for us. We know that it was great because it purchased eternal life for us. It paid the penalty that we deserve. It won freedom from Satan's kingdom. It bought life everlasting for people of all nations. And so we praise you for that great death on the cross. We praise you. And now for each one of us, those of us who have responded to that message, save us from that most common response, which is to see that as some kind of insurance policy that we can sign up to, then live our own life the way that we choose it, and then just trust in that when we die, that we'll make it into heaven because we signed up for the insurance. Lord, save us from that weak, pallid, boring existence. Help us instead to see the life that Jesus has designed for us, a life of death. A life of death to sin, death to self. And paradoxically, an abundant life. A life of abundant service, of abundant worship, of abundant holiness, of abundant joy. A life of abundance as we follow our great God and King. Father, we've been asking the question over the past 20 weeks, who is Jesus? I pray that your message through your word about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he calls us to would be made real for us right now, would come alive to us right now. That's a work of your spirit and we trust 
that you would work that miracle in our hearts now. We pray it in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.